Take your Bibles tonight, and I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 7 and just hold it. We'll get there eventually. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Good choice of songs tonight. Excellent singing. Beautiful ministry of music. I've told you, I think my favorite kind of music is congregational singing. You know, there are a lot of great specials and groups and quartets and what have you out there. I, and they're good. Uh, I like congregational singing. First Samuel chapter 7. Is that what I said? First Samuel 7. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to this evening, and Lord, again, we are beyond grateful for your wonderful blessings you've bestowed upon your children. I thank you, Lord, for all that you did at Calvary. Thank you for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking forward to that. And Lord, if you so choose to blow the trumpet tonight, we would not complain a bit. But Lord, until then, we pray that you would give your children the edification that they need, the teaching that they need, the help that we all need, Lord, to function in this filthy mess down here and to stay clean and to stay pure and to stay zealous for thee. Lord, you only have a piece of dirt to work with up here. I pray tonight you would take this piece of dirt and fill it with your spirit and your power because nothing is accomplished outside of your spirit or your power. Pray for your passion, your words, your wisdom. Please speak to us tonight. Minister to us tonight, Spirit of God. You have free course in here. Sit next to every, each and every one of us. Stand behind this pulpit. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would minister to your people. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We have been talking about various subjects. And tonight, as far as Christian worldview is concerned, uh, tonight we are going to look at the wonderful subject of the political realm and what the Christian worldview is concerning politics, which is kind of blurred at times, and what the world thinks about politics. And we live in a rare country. America is a rare country. Any country that has a constitution like ours is a very rare country because we have a country that offers religious freedom. And that was one of the reasons why the pilgrims came here, was to try to find religious freedom. Uh, they were in Holland for a while. They thought that would work out. But they found out that they were losing their children to the culture of Holland. And they said, we've got to get out of here. And they made the trick, trek, trip, trek, whatever you want to call it, across the pond. And you know the story. Settled in Massachusetts. And began to establish a government. And one of the key elements to that government was religious freedom. They had come out of a world uh, where there was one state religion that was controlling everybody or tried to control everybody. And they wanted to establish a place to live where there was freedom, religious freedom. And as more and more came and as the country began to grow, uh, we had great men that showed up, men that the majority of them were Christian. And I don't mean Christian culturally, I mean they were born again. So how do you know that? Well, if you read what they say. The, um, one of the best ways to know what somebody really believed is to read what they say. It's called primary source documents. Any good historian always looks for the primary source documents. What did they say? You can talk about Plymouth and the Plymouth colonies and what have you, or you can read uh, of planta Plantation, oh, come on, brain, uh, Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford, because there's, he's telling you what was going on and what it was like. And so if you really want to know what the early founders of our country believed, you read what they said. And uh, the majority of men uh, believed the Bible. Many of them had a testimony of conversion, and they were using the Bible to establish a government. Um, somebody checked out one time of all the different quotations that our founding fathers made, and the Bible was the one that was quoted the most. 
The second was Blackstone's Law, which was the legal work of the day. They quoted that second, a far second from their quotation of Scripture. And in their forming of this nation, they put in Article 6, Section 3, that says no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. So, you know, you can't uh, question a person and say, well, if you're Catholic or if you're a Baptist, you can't do it. Uh, That was outlawed. And then, of course, we have the religion clause of the First Amendment, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So in one clause, they made sure that there would never be a state religion like there was in Europe. And on the other clause, there was freedom to exercise your particular beliefs. Adams had an interesting twist on that. He said, I don't mind different religious views coming into the country because he, he, in his opinion, was one religious view kind of countered the other one. If you establish one religion over all the rest, you end up with a state religion. That's the last thing they wanted to do. So Adams said, it'd be a good idea just to allow all these different religions to come in and they kind of counter each other and uh, keep uh, one religion from being prominent. So... Here we are in America today, and we all have this desire to return back to the founding times of our nation and to the concept of America as a Christian nation, as we conceive it, or so we think. So we think. Um, I just want to remind you that as this country was being formed, the Baptists were here and were being persecuted. I think it was Witherspoon that was whipped at, uh, in Culpeper, Virginia, and at various places like that. Uh, we Baptists have suffered not only at the hands of unbelievers, but we have suffered at the hands of those that profess Jesus Christ. And there was a little bit of a unique aspect to the Pilgrim Puritan concept of things. If you, um, i trying to remember correctly now, if you failed to... Oh, if you committed adultery, that was a $500 fine if you were caught. So any kind of fornication, a $500 fine. If you failed to tithe, it was a $2,000 fine. So that will give you an idea of the power that the church wanted to exercise over people. I remember back in the 70s, we had a desire to basically infiltrate the religious, the, the political system. We had the religious right under James Dobson. We had the moral majority under Jerry Falwell. We had the Christian coalition under Ralph Reed. There was a family research council, Concerned Women for America, etc., etc., etc. And they tried to make inroads into the political world. And the thought process was, and Paul Weirich puts it very aptly, the process was, or the approach, was based on two premises. The assumption that there was a moral majority that agreed with the basic views of Christian conservatives. And the belief that if the religious right elected enough conservatives to political office, the agenda of the religious right would be enacted and the culture saved. That was the thought process. Weirich later kind of comes back off of that, and he says this, if the so-called religious right focuses mainly on politics to deliver us, we will never get that right, because politics and government cannot reach into the soul. Because the problem with man is here. And you cannot legislate spirituality. Now you can legislate morality. Remember, remember when the moral majority was out there? and the, That was the saying that came out. You can't legislate morality. Which is one of the dumbest things people have ever said. Is murder immoral? Do we have laws against murder? Are we legislating morality? Is theft immoral? Do we have laws against theft? Yeah, you, we, we legislate morality all the time. You cannot legislate spirituality. Uh, Government should understand that. Christians should understand that. There are some pastors that run their churches where they're trying to legislate morality. They want you to look right and dress white and get your hair cut a certain way and all that stuff because somehow they think they can make you spiritual by doing that. And that is wrong. That is wrong. Uh, My approach is that you need to learn what the Bible says. You need to let the Spirit of God deal with you from the Scriptures. And if you love Jesus Christ and you love that book, you will do what that book says without somebody standing up here and beating you over the head and all that kind of stuff. Wyrick went on to say this. 
These conservatives who argue that liberals used government to undermine what the founders began should not now seek to grab the reins of government from liberal hands in order to use government solely to fix problems that are beyond its reach and power to solve. All right, I agree with that. There are some things that do need to be done, and there are some things that need to be snatched out of the liberals' hands. I, I, I believe that. <clears throat> but again, we're not going to legislate spirituality. Weirich sees Christian conservatives as a minority who must withdraw and live separated lives. Moreover, while he continues to believe that politics is important, he now rejects the belief that cultural transformation can be the result. You know, I look at, uh, I look at government as more of a business. Uh, this country is a business. It has all the aspects of a business or an organization. And when an election time comes, I want to vote for people that are going to do the best for the business of America. And try to do somebody that's going to oppose what hurts our country. So I oppose abortion. I oppose uh, the 16 genders that are out there. I, I oppose all that nonsense because it is nonsense. It hurts our country. I under, and understand this, when we have an election, and we go through this every four years, we go have an election, we are not voting for a pastor, we're not voting for a deacon or a Sunday school superintendent, we're voting for a president. And you need to keep that in mind. You say, well, preacher, what about the immorality in America and what about all America's sins? That's your job. That's your job. That's not the job of the president. That's not the job of, the, of Andy Biggs or the rest of the Freedom Caucus or whoever else. That's your job and that's my job to deal with the sins of America. Because God gave us that responsibility. So, having said that, we're going to explore in the next week or two. Uh, and it won't be next week. We'll start tonight. Let's explore the Christian's relationship to the political realm or the biblical view of politics versus the world's views. And let's do it this way. Let's look at the history. Let's look at history from the birth of the nation of Israel. Let's just look at Israel as, a, uh, as a, an example. From the birth of the nation of Israel to the calling out of the church until the Edict of Milan in AD 313 under Constantine because that'll open up a lot of understanding to this thing so you think about Israel and I've told you before Abraham was the father of the Jewish race Moses is the father of the nation of Israel and if you've read your Bible you understand what was going on you had Abraham and Isaac Isaac and Jacob Jacob had 12 sons the boys tried to get rid of one of them the, the second youngest by the name of Joseph they tried to get rid of him they hated him because he had he was prophesying to them of dreams that the Lord had given him and because his dad favored him. And uh, just, just a thought here, you know, one of the worst things you can do for your children is to favor one over the other. And sometimes that's hard because some are very loving and some are, uh, they're loving but in a quiet kind of a way and it's, you, you kind of gravitate toward one and, and not so much toward the other and one feels... Uh, neglected the other feels you know like they're the best kid in the family and all that stuff uh, that's a very dangerous thing you don't want to do that with children uh, you have to love them equally for who they are and etc etc anyway Joseph's brothers hated him because of his dreams they hated him because daddy favored him and so they sold him into slavery you know the story and long story short Joseph ends up the vice, pres vice pharaoh of Egypt at just the right time when there's a famine in the land and, and the other brothers got to go down into Egypt to find some food and Joseph reveals himself to them. The family is united. Joseph brings them down and they settle in the land of Goshen, which is eastern Egypt, probably some of the best land you could be in, especially if you're raising cattle. And there they live and they're loving Goshen and they would have lived happily ever after if God had not had a plan. But God had a plan and he needed to get them out of there. They were never intended to stay there. There was a promised land that they were supposed to be in. And so God had things change. He brought in a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph. And again, long story short, the Jews are, have their property confiscated. They are moved into various parts. They become slaves and life becomes terribly miserable. And they cry out to God for a deliverer. And here comes Moses. And Moses shows up, and after ten horrific plagues, the last being the worst, Pharaoh lets them go. 
And so they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. Pharaoh's army tries to follow them. And the Lord lets the water come down and drown them. And so now you have the whole nation of Israel cross from the Red Sea. And the first thing God does is take them to Sinai where they receive everything they need to know to form a nation. Uh, There is civil laws, there are religious laws, there are ceremonial laws. Everything they need to be a nation that is a theocracy, God is giving them at Sinai. And of course, you know the story, they mess up, they eventually get into the promised land, and they conquer the people in the promised land, and they begin to set up the nation, they begin to divide the promised land up by the different tribes, um, each tribe getting what they needed to get. And then they enter into what's called the period of the judges. And so you have the judges ruling. Originally, God in a theocracy, God is the one that's leading. Theo, God, theocracy. God is the head of the nation. So God led the children of Israel through Moses. Then he led them through Joshua. Now he's going to lead them again through the judges. And that would have worked Except the problem is the people. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, chapter 17 and on, you've got anarchy happening among the people. So why do you say that? And anarchy, by the way, means it's a state of disorder due to absence or non-recognition of authority or other controlling systems. It wasn't a total anarchy because you had the law and the priesthood, which remained intact, Uh, Although in Eli's day it had been corrupted. But Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, don't turn there. But Judges 17 and verse 6 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Judges 21, 25, In those days there was no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There's the problem. Instead of determining what the scriptures were to say and what the scriptures said to do, and they had the scriptures, they had the priesthood, they had the knowledge of God there. Instead of trying to determine that, they did that which was right in their own eyes. And I think of the verse in Proverbs that's there twice. Um, There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so the judges period is falling apart. And God does raise up a young man by the name of Samuel. And uh, that's where we are, 1 Samuel chapter 7. That's what I want you to look at. God will continue to use the theocracy as seen by looking at the ministry of Samuel. God will get things straightened out again. Didn't need a king. He just needed a good judge that loved him and followed him and was willing to preach to the people. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, it says, Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, and put away the strange gods at Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And so here's his preaching. How does he straighten the country out? He goes out and he preaches to them. He said, You need to get your hearts right. You've got idols in the land and you're worshiping Ashtaroth. Get rid of all that stuff. Get your heart right with God and God will deliver you. Their fear was the Philistines were all around them and they were ready to take him out. Samuel says, just get your heart right. Didn't have to in law, uh, uh, have different sanctions and programs and what have you. Just get your hearts right and God will deliver you. And he certainly did. Their fear was the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel 7 and verse 10, look down there. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, so he's going to be doing an offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. God did that. These people were getting their hearts right with God. They were worshiping the Lord, and when the Philistines came and attacked, the Lord said, I'll take care of that. It had a little thunderstorm come by and scared the daylights out of them. You get down to verse 15 of 1 Samuel chapter 7. It says, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. He was a circuit-riding preacher, like in the early years of our country. Verse 17, His return was to Ramah, for there was his house. There he judged Israel. There he built an altar unto the Lord. So things are going well. People are listening to Samuel. They're following Samuel. 
He's preaching to them all over the place. Things are going well. That's the way a theocracy is supposed to run. However, there was a problem. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting at verse 1. It says, It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judge over Israel. Now look at the phrase closely. He made, he made his sons judges over Israel. Uh, last time I checked, God's the one that chooses the judges. But he's thinking, okay, I got these two boys. I'm getting kind of old. I'll have these two boys take over and take my spot. Verse 2, now the name of the firstborn was Joel, the name of the second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. Now look at verse 3. His sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, took bribes, and perverted judgment. Why did they do that? Because God never called them to be a judge. And they had a tendency to be crooked. Isn't that a shame? Here's Samuel, this great man of God, and you would think his offspring would be good men of God also. But that's, again, it's not a guarantee. Billy Sunday, uh, his kids never followed him in the ministry. They never followed him in a good life. It's, it's just amazing how that happens. Um, I'm blessed. I've got, I got kids that they're not following me. They're following the Lord. But I've got, you know, I'm blessed with, with uh, well, for most of them anyway. I'm blessed with how uh, <laughs> you get it all the time, don't you? Anyway. Uh, it's just amazing how that happens. First, uh, excuse me, Samuel was a great man of God, but his sons weren't. Now, if you're the people, if you're the people and you're seeing that, what are you thinking? You're thinking, Samuel was a great guy, but his sons are crooked. And we really don't want to be under crooked leadership. Me neither. We are, but I don't want to be under crooked leadership. I, I don't. And I understand their, their feeling. I don't understand how they went about to fix it. Now, wouldn't it make sense to you that if this is the situation, you go to Samuel and say, Samuel, we love you, man. You're a great guy. But your kids are rotten. And we're having a hard time letting them be judges over us because they're taking bribes. And we could give you the, the witnesses if you'd like. They're doing uh, things that are not good, they're taking, they're, they're working, they're in it for the money, they're perverting judgment, and Samuel, we would like you to ask God to bring us a real judge. Wouldn't that be the right way to do it? Samuel, please pray for us that God would give us a judge, another judge like you, to take your place when, when you have to, have to leave this earth. That would be the way to handle it. That's not the way they handle it. They wouldn't even have needed to go on to Samuel. They could have got on their knees before a holy God and said, Lord, you know what's going on. You see what they're doing. We would like a replacement for Samuel. Please send us another judge like Samuel. That would have been the way to handle it. That's not the way they handle it. Look down at verse 4. First Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel... Under Rama, here's an opportunity to do it the right way. And said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Okay, that's, that's a good approach. Now here's the problem. Make us a king. We want a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, we've done this theocracy thing for a long time. Moses was the head for a while, and there was Joshua and the judges, and there was a problem there. Then you came along, Samuel. You did a great job. But you know what? All the other nations have a king. And we would like a king too, just like them. Why in the world would you want to be like the other nations if you're God's peculiar people? But somehow they got this idea in their head that living under a monarchy was better than living under a theocracy. And it kind of broke Samuel's heart. Well, they said, make us a king to judge us like all the nations, kind of reveals the heart of the people. To not want God to judge them and to lead them in the way that he had been doing is a rejection of him. First uh, Samuel chapter 8, go down there. Uh, verse 6, First Samuel 8, verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Yeah, 
I would say it displeased Samuel for two reasons. One, they shouldn't want a king like the other nations, and man, it's a shame my two boys messed up. Samuel prayed unto the Lord, verse 7, The Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. He was probably shocked when, when the Lord said that. The Lord said, well, go ahead and give them what they want. Now watch it. For they have not rejected thee. They have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. That's the problem. They didn't want God to reign over them. They wanted a king. Verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me, served other gods, so they also do, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them. Show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. So the Lord says, give them what they want. Go tell them they can have a king. But when you tell them they can have a king, you better warn them about this thing of a monarchy. You better warn them about what a king is going to do. You better warn them about having a nation where you've got religion and you've got state. Be careful about that. So, down to verse 11. Samuel preaches to the people and says, God will give you a king, but here's what he's going to do. Verse 11, he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. Some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands, captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, to be cooks, to be bakers. And he will take your fields, and your vineyards, and your oliveyards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maidservants and the goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Did you notice as we read through there six times it says he will take? Well, that ought to give you a lesson on government right there. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. And if you're not familiar with how the government works, that's what they do. They take. It's called taxation, it's called fees, it's called whatever you want to call it. But the government knows how to take. And I get tired of hearing these people say, well, you know, the government ought to do this. Government ought to pay for that. And the government ought to pay for this. Government ought to provide for that. And the question is, okay, where does the government get their money from? You ask these kids around here that think that, or these people around here, you know, that want the government to do this, say, well, hey, where do they get their money? The government doesn't produce a product and sell it on the open market. Where does the government get their money? Out of your pocket, out of my pocket. And yeah, they can be generous. I mean, you take somebody's money from over here, give it to these people over there, redistribution of wealth, some people call it. We want to tax the rich and make them pay their fair share. No, you want to get your hands in their pockets so you can give it to your little pet projects over here. You're not kidding anybody. So Samuel warns them. And they go ahead anyway. They get their king. Now, one thing you need to understand. From that point on, there is a separation of the religious and the monarchy, which is intended by God. So how do you know that? Go to 1 Samuel 13. First king makes a big mistake. The first king doesn't know how to separate church and state. Saul is waiting for Samuel to come. He's got an enemy that he has to deal with. Samuel is late. Verse 8, he tarried seven days, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed, but Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him, so the people were all, you know, all over the place. And Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. That's what the priesthood is supposed to do. That's not what the king is supposed to do. That's what religion is supposed to do. That's not what the state is supposed to do. Verse 10, and it came to pass that as soon as he made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came 
And Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? What in the world did you just do? And Saul said, Well, because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and thou camest not within the days appointed, which he actually did, just not when Saul thought he would come, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal. I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I... Boy, if you want to ever learn how to make an excuse, read this guy. I forced myself, therefore. Sounds like your kids, doesn't it? I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said unto Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God. You had no business making that sacrifice. You had no business putting yourself in the position of a priest when you're the king. God wanted to keep that separation. Now there is one that's both prophet and both that's prophet, priest, and king. And when he comes back, it'll be okay. But for Saul to do that, he wasn't to do that. I'll give you another example. Go to Second Chronicles twenty six. Isaiah was a great king. Isaiah saw him in Isaiah chapter 6, saw that vision of the Lord and during Isaiah's reign. If you read the beginning of chapter 26, it talks about all the Reformation and all the things that Isaiah established as a king. He was a great king. But he fell prey to what happens to many human beings with success. You know, some folks say, you know, Lord, give me success. Lord, make me successful. That may be a dangerous thing to ask for. Some of the greatest men of God and some of the greatest people have destroyed their lives because they had success. So appreciate the fact that you fail more than you succeed. It's probably good for you. Appreciate the fact that God doesn't answer that prayer of, Lord, give me a million bucks. Because you'd blow yourself away with it. God knows exactly what you need. He knows where you are. Be satisfied with that. Look at what happened with Isaiah. Verse 16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. Boy, you hear that more and more times when you read the Old Testament. Their heart was lifted up. In other words, you're getting full of pride. Heart was lifted up to his destruction. Pride cometh before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. There's an example right there. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. That's what the Aaronic priesthood is supposed to do. They go in there with the little censer thing and they get the incense altar burning and make sure it stays burning and they make sure the showbread is fresh and they make sure that the candlesticks or uh, the wicks are taken care of and it's burning brightly. That's the priesthood's job. It's not the job of the monarch. Verse 17, And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men, and they withstood Uzziah the king and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense of the Lord, but to the priests of the sons of Aaron that are consecrated to burn incense. You have no business being in here. I know you're the king. You have no business messing around with the temple. You have no business being in here trying to fulfill the role of a priest. You are not that. And then they said this, go out of the sanctuary, get out of here. For thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Get out of here, you have messed up. But Isaiah was dealing in pride. He was lifted up. So, 19, then Isaiah was wroth. He got mad. Who are you to kick me out of here? I'm the king. Isaiah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priest, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. He gets mad and God hits him with leprosy, just like that. And at some point they said, go look in the mirror. And he walked over to something that was reflective. And he saw leprosy on his forehead and he knows he's had it. Verse 20, And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. 
So here's this proud and successful king who made the biggest mistake in his life. He was trying to mix church and state together. And it cost him everything. Verse 21, Isaiah the king was a leper under the day of his death and dwelt in a several house being a leper. He was cut off from the house of the Lord and Jotham his son was over the king's house judging the people of the land. You know what God is trying to show us here? You don't mix church and state. There's a difference. There's a separation. So Israel is going to get a king. The first king they choose, of course, is Saul. Saul messed up. Then there's David. David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. Solomon, uh, successful off of his daddy pretty much. But Solomon messed it up at the end of his life. And as a result, the kingdom is divided. So you have ten tribes that make up the north. You have two tribes that make up the south. You have a divided kingdom. And you have a mess trying to run it. Every king of the north was no good. And half the kings of the south were no good. Somebody said one time, if you go to Bible college and they give you a test and they put all the names of the king you know, on a piece of paper and there's a little blank spot in front of it and you have to write B for bad or G for good, mark them all bad, you'll get a 75. That's what it boils down to. Um, the ten northern tribes, they had no good king. Eventually the Assyrian army came in, 721 B.C., and destroyed them and took them captive, and they never returned. They are spread all around the world. Uh, they did not go to England and then come to the United States. They are not the USA in the middle of Jerusalem and all that nonsense. But they never came back. The southern tribes had some good kings, had some bad ones. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar came 606 B.C., the first deportation, 597 when Ezekiel was deported, 586 when he came in to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And 70 years they're going to spend in Babylon. After the end of 70 years, as Jeremiah had prophesied, they would return. And when they return from exile, they're headed up by Ezra and Nehemiah. They really have no king. Ezra and Nehemiah are the, seem to be the leaders. I believe Nehemiah was called a Tershatha, uh, which is some form of leader. But they didn't elect a king or try to have a king or anything like that. They just wanted to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple and worship God and try to bring things back like they were. And that lasted for a while until the Greeks came in and the Greeks conquered them and the rest of the known world. And during that time, you know, when Alexander the Great died, he had four generals and he divided up, the kingdom was divided up among these four generals. Seleucus was one of them, and he was pretty much over what was going on in the area of Israel. There'd be a rebellion by the Maccabees, referred to as the Hasmonean dynasty, and uh, they were free from that for a while. And then Rome came in. And Rome conquered everything. And Rome became the ruling political power. And you didn't argue with Rome. And so Israel at that time, in fact, Israel from then to the time of Christ, had Rome as the ruler. Caesar Augustus was the Caesar. Herod was the puppet king that Rome had put in power. And the rulers of Israel were the high priests. Annas and, uh, Anna, Anna and Caiaphas were the ruling high priests of that day. And so you have a division. You have the Roman political power over here. You got the Jewish religious aspect over here. How do we treat that? How do we live in a society where you've got a political power that really doesn't like you? Because Rome wasn't thrilled with the Jews. They tried to keep peace with them, but they weren't really happy with them. How do you as a Jew during that time, how, what, what attitude should you have toward the rolling, ro ruling Roman power. So, wow, you know, we'll get our guns and our guts and our God, and we'll, we'll, we'll wipe them out. You ain't going to do that with Rome. You're not going to do that with Rome. So how do you deal with that? We've got a couple examples in Scripture. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus lived in that time. The Jews wanted Jesus to conquer the Romans. I mean, he could walk on water and do all that stuff. Certainly he could conquer the Romans, bring Israel back into power. 
But how did Jesus treat the ruling power? He was questioned. He was, they were trying to set him up in Matthew 22, verse 17. He says, tell, they said, tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Well, if he would have said yes, they would have considered him a compromised uh, individual. If he would have said no, they would have considered him a, re- a rebel. It's, a, it's one of those set-up questions. Those, those are fun questions to ask. I, had a, I worked with a guy, and we went into a carryout one time, a roofing, roofing crew, and we stopped, went into a carryout one time, and he saw one of his, his old friends. And uh, in a nice, loud voice in front of everybody, he says, Hey, how long have you been out of prison? And the guy said, I, I didn't go to prison. But you realize when you ask a question like that, it's, it's pretty much... You know, you're pretty much trapped, you know. Uh, it was just, it's just humorous. That's, that's like the question of, uh, hey, hey, are you still beating your wife? With the implication, if you say yes, you're in trouble. If you say no, I'm glad you stopped, you know. Anyway, this is the type of question they're trying to give Jesus. Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? In other words, there's a head on this thing. Who is that? And they said unto him, it's Caesar's. And saith he unto them, then here's what you do. You render unto Caesar to the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. That's the way you handle that. As a citizen of a nation, we have certain responsibilities to Caesar. As a Christian, we have certain responsibilities to God. You don't mix the two, but understand you do have a responsibility to Caesar, and you do have a responsibility to God. That's how we live in America as a Christian. I've got a responsibility to this nation, and I have a responsibility to God. Go to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. And this is good for those of you that think you should join the tax revolt because every, every year around April 15th you got the tax revolt. We need to, you know, taxing is illegal and all that stuff. I've known a couple people that went that route and ended up in prison. I don't think you need to try that. You can tithe from prison, but it's really not the best way to do it. Look what Jesus said. Matthew 17, 24. And when they were come, this is Jesus and Peter, when they were come to Capernaum, uh, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, does not your master pay tribute? And Peter says, yeah, he does. I don't think Peter knew or not, but he gave the right answer. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, stood in front of him and said, saying, what thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Which is a good question. Why should a citizen have to pay taxes? It should be just the strangers, the foreigners in the country that have to pay taxes. That's what was going on there. Peter saith unto him, of strangers, they're the ones who are supposed to pay the taxes. Jesus saith unto him, then the children are free. We're Israelites. We live here. This is our country. We should be free. But then look at verse 27. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, cast a hook, take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that uh, that take and give unto them for me and thee. So we don't want to offend them. Here's a way to get some money. Take the money, give it to them. I don't like to pay taxes any more than you do. But here's my advice. Pay your taxes. It's probably not the battlefield you want to get on. Just pay the stupid taxes. Some of the money does go for good things. And if you don't like taxes and you don't like to pay taxes, contact your congressman, contact the legislatures and say, would you please make a law where we can get out of this? Or would you please promote the flat tax or some other way? But don't be one of these rebels that says, I'm not going to pay my taxes. Yeah, you try that for five or six years. And then you're going to get the knock on the door. Pay your taxes. Jesus said in this case right here, we don't want to offend them. Imagine that. Jesus said, I don't want to offend them. So he found a fun way to pay taxes. Boy, that's a fun way to pay taxes when you go down to the fishing hole and you cast in, you pull the first fish out, lo and behold, there's money in it. I've, I've done a lot of fishing in my life, never caught a fish like that. 
I've caught fish that have had other lures in it and other hooks in it and stuff like that. Never caught a fish that had money in it. Maybe I need to fish more. And supposedly that was a tilapia, by the way. Supposedly. So I really like tilapia, I'll tell you that. Anyway. So we know the story. Jesus Christ is going to be executed by the Romans because the Jews weren't allowed to execute anybody but the Jews were working with the Romans the high priests were working with Pilate uh, to get Jesus crucified and he did and problem solved until the third day when he rose from the dead and here we go again and so Christianity now is going to spread we've talked about that beginning in the book of Acts and I told you before that crippled man laying at the gate beautiful was the beginning of the global missions. Because because of that, and because of the results of that, persecution began on the apostles in Jerusalem, and it would continue on, and pretty soon the Jews are suffering so greatly in Jerusalem, they actually have to do what God told them to do to begin with. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. You want to get away from the Jewish persecution? Go preach in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. That's how God got them to move. Uh, Acts chapter 8 talks about they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And so as the gospel goes out, there is going to be persecution. And we've gone through this months ago when we were looking at Revelation on Thursday nights in chapter 2 and 3, which um, prophetically represents the church age. And we looked at all the different problems that the church has gone through and all the struggles that the church has gone through. And for the first three centuries, the Romans really wanted to destroy Christianity. Uh, They had, I forget the name of it, it was the great, not the great purging, but the great... Great persecution Um, under Diocletian and these others. They wanted to rid the empire of Christians. And every time they persecuted Christians, Christianity grew to the point where it's a great big religion now. And then you know the story. Constantine sees two contrails of 757s in the sky and uh, looks like a cross and He believes that God is telling him that Christianity is good. He baptizes all of his soldiers, sprinkling water on their heads and all that stuff. But here's the thing. In AD 313, in the city of Milan, two men. One was Constantine. He was the head of the western part of the kingdom. The other one was Licinius. He was the head of the eastern part of the kingdom. And they weren't at odds with each other. We've talked about that before. There was, the kingdom was just so big and so broken up that you have to have an east and a west, but you know, supposedly everybody could work together. Well, Constantine and Licinius, they got together and they made an agreement concerning religion, especially Christianity. And in terms, its terms are known to us from a rescript or a writing or a rewriting issued six months later by Licinius. He's the one that actually put it in writing. And this rescript was sent from his capital of Nicomedia, which is now Izmit in Turkey, uh, just east of the Bosporus, to the governor of the nearby province of Bithynia. Listen to what he says. Our purpose is to grant both to the Christians and to all others full authority to follow whatever worship each person has desired whereby whatsoever deity dwells in heaven may be benevolent and propitious to us and to all who are placed under our authority. He said, let's let everybody worship the God that they want to worship. One of them's going to get it right and it'll be a blessing to our country. Therefore, we thought it salutary or good, good for us and most proper to establish our purpose that no person, whatever should be refused, complete toleration, who has given up his mind either to the cult of the Christians or to the religion which he personally feels best suited to himself. It is our pleasure to abolish all conditions, whatever, which were embodied in former orders. That was the idea of eliminating Christians. Whatever which were embodied in our former orders directed to your office about the Christians that every one of those who have a common wish to follow the religion of the Christians may from this moment 
freely and unconditionally proceed to observe the same without any annoyance or disquiet. That's one of the strongest statements for religious freedom you're ever going to read. And that is probably stronger than what we have in the First Amendment. 3.13, Edict of Milan. Christianity is now legal. Can you imagine having the week before being imprisoned for being a Christian? Knowing you may be going into the <coughs> Colosseum and be fed to the lions or whatever method they chose to do away with you. And suddenly the prison guard walks up to your door, puts the key in, opens the door and says, guess what? You now have total religious freedom. Wouldn't we like that? We have religious freedom, but there are some areas. Wouldn't it be nice for the government to just say, do whatever you want to do? Worship however you want to worship. Free exercise, all the free exercise you want to free exercise. Just have at it. Then the next thing that took place. It's good to have that freedom. But here's the problem. Christians never did that well when we have freedom. You say, I don't understand that preacher. I don't understand it either. But when we have freedom, we kind of take it for granted. I've told you before about Victor Khalil, who was a... uh, his dad was saved out of Islam. He was raised in Egypt and Lebanon, and he ended up in England for a while working in the bank, and then he came to the United States, and he was in Dearborn, Michigan. That's where I met him, and he's trying to reach the Muslims in Dearborn. Now he's in San Diego, larger Muslim population in San Diego. He said, Brother Jim, I don't understand it. He said, when I was in Egypt, well, he said, when I was in Lebanon, on a couple occasions, I was going up the steps to my house and a guy came and stuck a gun in my face and said he was going to kill me for what I was doing. They tried to make it illegal for me to do anything. I left there. I went to England. I came to the United States. And I thought, boy, the United States, we have freedom to, to minister and to preach. He says, why is it you Americans don't exercise that freedom? He said, you guys are so free, you can preach to anybody, you can minister to anybody, you can do all kinds of stuff. Why is it you don't exercise that freedom that you have? It's a good question. It's a good question. We don't do well under freedom. Christianity thrives, and I hate to say this, Christianity thrives under persecution. You know when we're going to have a real revival in this country? I'm not talking about this Asbury nonsense. You know when we'll have real revival in this country? When we start getting persecuted for what we believe. Because it's then we'll start taking this thing seriously. There are so many churches that don't take what Christ did at Calvary seriously. Don't take the idea that you're a child of God. And you need to live for him. We don't take that seriously. Don't take it seriously that there is a place called hell. And as a result, we just linger a lot of times. Really don't do what we could do. Every church pastor complains about those who show up for visitation. Now, let me rephrase that. They don't complain about the ones that show up for visitation. They complain about the other 80 or 90% that don't. Anyway, Edict of Milan. Great freedom for the Christians. And because Christianity was so big and so influential and it had permeated all aspects of Roman society, they had a power, being so many of them. So by AD 380, Emperor Theodosius signed another edict It was called the Edict of Thessaloniki. That edict made Christianity the official religion of the state. 
and confirmed and solidified the influence of Christianity not only on the Roman world at that time, but also for the rest of world history. Christianity became the religion of the state of Rome. And Constantine, Constantine still controlled that. But the church would develop a leader. The bishop of Rome would be the leader of Christianity. And you know the bishop of Rome by another name. He's called the Pope. And so you have this religion that's called imperial Christianity. It's called Roman Christianity. It's called, because it's universal, Catholicism, imperial Catholicism, or Roman Catholicism. Do you see the problem when church and state join together? And the Christians thought, this is great, until they realized that they would have to unite with the pagans, because the pagans still have freedom to worship. They're just not the state religion. But you still have to figure out how to get along, and the pagans have their gods. What do you do about that? Well, you change that god to a saint, and you change that god to a saint, and that god to a saint. We've talked about it in Revelation class. Constantine gave to the Christians the great basilicas that they could worship in, gave to them the clerical garments that other priests had worn, gave to them all the stuff that they needed. And there you have it. Listen, I don't want to be part of a state church because being part of a state church is way too much compromise. And I'm just wondering if the moral majority and the, the, the Christian coalition and the religious right and all that, if they would have had their way and actually infiltrated and became powerful within the political realm, what would really happen? We have some great people in our Congress. Chip Roy out of Texas, Lauren Boebert out of Colorado, Ted Cruz. I listened to Ted Cruz last week as they're drilling Mayorkas and... Uh, Josh Hawley is another one. Um, guy start, name starts with a C, that Cooper. Anyway, we've got some great guys that are in the political world. And they're doing their job. But before you get too excited about conservatives, I've told you time and time again, conservative does not mean Christian. Conservative does not mean born-again child of God. Because most of the conservatives you listen to on the radio, such as Sean Hannity um, and the others, most of them are Roman Catholic or lean in that direction. And I can support them for their political work, but I certainly cannot support them for their religion. But you join up in these political groups and you join up in these organizations and you're going to have Catholics coming in and you're going to have Episcopalians coming in and you're going to have every... Every cat in the alley coming in. And what do you do with that? And everybody says it's for a good cause. We can turn our country around. I think there's a better way to do it. If this country gets turned around, first of all, we have to define what it means to be turned around. Going from liberal to conservative, that's great, but that's not turning the country around. Going from lost to saved, that's what turns the country around. And you're not going to legislate that. And I'm not going to expect Washington to do my job for me. That's my job, that's your job, to preach the gospel to those people that you work with every day, that you live around every day. That's your job, that's my job, to get the gospel to them because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is what changes lives. That's what changes the culture. One life at a time. That's where we need to concentrate. We'll talk more about this the next time I'm up here. Are there any questions or comments? All right. Well, let's go ahead and be dismissed in word of prayer. Um, yeah, don't forget, Thursday night we have church. All right. Father, we thank you for being the God that you are. Lord, you've made it pretty clear what you expect of your children. Lord, we 
feel bad that these Jewish people in Samuel's day rejected you and wanted a king and we've been in trouble ever since. Lord, I pray for our country. I pray, Lord, that your children will rise up and do what they're supposed to do and preach the gospel to this country. Because, Lord, we believe it's the gospel that has the power to change lives. We pray that you would give us good government officials that know how to make wise decisions and not stupid decisions, wise decisions. But, Lord, we don't expect them to do what you've called us to do. Help us to fulfill our responsibility to the people around us. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you'd give everyone a good week. Bring us back safely Thursday night. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.